He is risen indeed. And as we think about the power of the resurrection, and as we, this morning, I'm going to take a little bit of a different track and talk about the humility of God. So in the resurrection, we see His power and His glory overcoming death, sin, and the devil. But as an application of that power and that glory, I want to talk about humility. And we see this in the Scripture. I think the Scripture gives us this picture and pattern. We're in Philippians chapter 2 this morning in verses 1 to 11. And we see that in verses 1 to 4, Paul gives a picture of what the church should be like. The attitude, the, the things that we should be experiencing and the attitude that we should have uh, among ourselves. The way we should treat each other, how we should be in the world. And then he says that this mind that we're supposed to have in verse 5 is the mind of Christ. And then he goes on to describe, well, you know, what is the mind of Christ? He said, who? And he begins to describe then his death and his resurrection. And so the application comes first in, in the humility of God's people. But then he gives the rationale for it as it's the mind of Christ. The Christ who both suffered and died and was raised for us. And so as we think about pleading for the power of the resurrection and what that looks like, at least one thing we should be after is the humility and gentleness that Christ empowers in us. We're in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Hear then the word of God. Paul writes and he says, If there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort in His love, if there's any participation in the Spirit, if there's any affection and sympathy, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, the same mind and the same love, being in full accord, in full harmony with one another, and of one mind together. What does this look like, Paul? Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind. This is the mind of Christ. Have this mind among yourselves. It's the mind that is in Christ Jesus. And we know this mind because it was He that was in the form of God and did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. But He emptied Himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in human likeness, in the likeness of men, and then being found in a human form, He humbled Himself. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. And therefore, has God highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, to the glory and to the praise of God the Father. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we have gathered on this day as your people, we've gathered to worship, to see Christ high and lifted up and to know the power of his resurrection, not just to know about it, not just to learn some more facts about the whole situation, but to see the power of it in transformation in our lives, that we would be changed, that we would be more like Jesus, even as this text calls us to be. Oh, give us this mind that was in Christ Jesus as we love each other and witness to him in the world. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.
So God is saying that you and I are to have the very mind of Jesus. I'm going to start in verse 5 and go forward and then come back to the application in verses 1 to 4. Because it's in verse 5 that he tells us we're to have the, the very mind of Jesus. And then he tells us what that mind is. The mind of the risen Christ. It's this. And verse 6 is in following. And when he describes the mind of Jesus, what he does is he gives us an astonishing glimpse. When he says, have this mind in yourself. It was in Christ Jesus. And then he gives us a glimpse of what can only be called the humility of God. Because he tells us he humbled himself. The humility of the uncreated creator. This God who is a self-existing deity. Nobody made him. He just exists. He is an infinite being of spirit and power and glory and wisdom. And it says he humbled himself. Right? Because in verse 6, it tells us that Jesus existed, had this mind in you which is in Christ Jesus, because verse 6, Jesus existed in the form of God. And he didn't consider equality with God something to be grafted. He, he existed in the form of God, that he, he was God. He shared the essence of God. This is what John chapter 1 tells us, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the form of God. The Word of God, Christ, existed in the form of God, and He was God, sharing His power and His glory. And so Jesus exists this way, sharing the essence of the Father. It says that He did not consider this equality, the equality of glory and power and being that He has with God. He didn't consider this equality something to be grasped or held on to. He was willing to let it go. Right? The mind of Jesus, the mind that is to be among us, is a mind that is willing to let it all go. A willingness to empty himself is what it says in verse 7. Right? It says that, that he didn't consider it something to be grasped, but rather, rather than grasping all that power and glory and, and equality with God, it says he emptied himself. The word there is a Greek word, kenosis been a lot of conversation about the word kenosis through church history. And this, the meaning of the, the, this Jesus who is God, the fullness of God in, in, in bodily form is what Colossians tells us. And what does it mean for him to empty himself? Right? Because he can't stop being God. Right? We, we've all decided that much. Right? He's still God is God. And even when he, he, he humbles himself and takes the form, human form, he has not divide, divested himself of any of his divinity. The NIV says that he made himself nothing. The NLT says that he gave up his divine privileges. Right? And I think that that gets at it, this idea that he emptied himself, that he, he divested himself, he had a place, he had status, he had glory, he, had, you know, the, he sat at the right hand ruling, and, and it says that he laid all those things aside. His glory is veiled. That's what we sing at Christmas. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, right? That he, all this is, is veiled in his flesh, right? So he lays aside his glory. This is what John 17, if you remember in the upper room, Jesus talks to his disciples, 13 to 17. He talks to them, and in 17, he prays. And part of his prayer, even as he is facing his own death, he prays this, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I used to have with you before the world existed. 
Right? He's saying before the world existed, Jesus had a glory that he shared with the Father. And that's what he laid aside. That's what is veiled. And now as he looks to his own death and his resurrection, he knows on the other side of it is that that glory will be restored. But he lays it aside in the incarnation, laying aside none of his divinity. He veils his glory and he accepts a life of, of obedience. He serves the Father in his humanity. He humbles himself and takes the form of a servant, right? And that seven goes on to say that, that this is what this means, that, that he empties himself. And what does that mean? Well, it means he takes the form of a servant. He's emptied himself of his rights and his privileges and his, and his power to, to rule, and he takes the form of a servant. He's born in a human form. He becomes a man in the likeness of men. He enters his own creation. The creator and Lord enters his own creation as a servant and as one of us. All right, this is what Matthew 20 tells us in 28. It says, the son of man, as he tells him, came not to be served. Right? The son of man came like he wasn't just born. He came. He had glory with the father and then he laid it aside and he came. And he came, he says, not to be served. This is the mind of Christ. Not to be served, but to serve and to give himself as a ransom. To give himself, to serve and to give. Right? Now, we've been talking about Christmas. This is all the incarnation, right? That Jesus took the form of a servant, took on the f- flesh, he became a man, and he did all of this, but he moves seamlessly, doesn't it? That this one who was born at Christmas was born to die, and he moves seamlessly without stopping. The work of Christ is one seamless garment, we heard Friday night that there's one seamless thing that his life that he lived for us, that we should live, the death that he died that we deserve, and the resurrection into a new life that we will get to share. But here in this incarnation, the taking flesh, it says that the Savior was born to die, and he moves seamlessly into Good Friday and to the resurrection. And Good Friday, it says that the Lord of the universe, who took the form of his servant, became obedient, verse 8. He served the purpose of God. He became obedient to do the will of God, which he did perfectly, even to the point, it says, of death. Even to death. And not just death, it says, though he was equal to, in being to God, he suffered the humiliation of our death. Right? It's bad enough. Death, all forms of death, is the judgment of sin. And so he suffers the humiliation of a death that we deserve, but not just any death. He didn't, just, he didn't live to old age and just die of old age. He's, he, suffered, he, he, he suffered the humiliation of, of, of our death, even death on a cross. Right? He said, how, how low can he go? How far is the humility of God? Right? Not that he would become human and, and serve us and to not only die for us, but that he would be crucified. That is, he would be executed, murdered in a form that is most humiliating. Right? It's a long, torturous death. It says they nailed him up there at nine in the morning. And at, and at three o'clock in the afternoon, they had to start breaking legs in order to shorten this thing so they could go home for dinner. Right? That it's a long and painful, slow death. And it's not something that you get to do in private. It's something where they strip you down in public and then nail you to a cross for a crowd to gather and to watch. It was a public spectacle to strip you down to nothing and have entertainment in your long, torturous death. 
our, our finite minds, I, sometimes it's like our, we grasp for the words to describe what's going on here, right? What, what God did. And we can, we can lay out and we can say the words, but it, to grasp really what is going on that, that the creator, the one who is an uncreated spirit, and who exists in all power and glory, who made us in everything that exists, would be constrained in our, our creation, that he would enter his creation, that he, would, that he would come and serve those that deserve death and hell, those who were in deep rebellion against him. And he would come and go to the depths of the humiliation, not just to death, but even death on the cross. And not just the death on the cross, but the, the death that we deserve, which is a spiritual death and the very wrath of God poured out on him, the one who didn't deserve to die. If there was one human being that didn't deserve to die, whether physically or spiritually, or to bear and just taste God's wrath, it was him. And he bore that wrath for us. And to try to grasp what that means, even just to grasp an uncreated spirit, infinite being of power and glory, and to grasp what he is doing for us. But we remember what he is doing, which is explaining the mind that is ours in Christ Jesus. This is the mind of the risen Christ. It's the mind of the glorious Christ before the creation. It's the mind of our Savior in his work, his saving work for us. And it's the mind that he wants us to, to have amongst ourselves as his people. And so we ask, why would he do this? Why would God, the infinite almighty God who dwells in unapproachable light and of his own eternal glory, why would he go so low? Why would he subject himself to all these things? The depths of humiliation at the hands of sinful men. And Isaiah 53 puts it this way, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. Right? He died for our sins, to pay our debt, to pay our price, what we owed, what we deserved. He suffered our humiliation. He plumbed the depths of our humiliation, of our darkness, of what we deserved. And he drank it in the image. He drank it. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? And he drank the cup of God's wrath to its humiliating depths. He came to serve and to give his life. This is the mind of Christ that he's holding up. And saying, let this mind be among you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who gave himself for our sins. Ryan McGraw puts it this way. He says, Christ served us by his humiliation, through his conception and his birth, and through his entire life, and through his death, and through his burial. In and through all these things, Christ, our prophet, our priest, our king, he acted in our place. He did it to remove the miseries of our sin, and to reconcile us to God in every possible way. He experienced the, the full depths and breadths of our humiliation and judgment so that we could be reconciled in every way. Free of it all, cleansed of it all, forgiven of it all. He emptied himself, laid aside his glory and his privileges, humbled himself and took the form of a servant, denied himself and gave himself for others. 
for you and I. And so as deep as our rebellion and our sin, so goes our Savior. And so John Stott says, every time we look at the cross, Christ seems to say to us, I'm here because of you. It is your sin that I'm bearing. It is your curse that I am suffering. It is your debt that I am paying. It is your death that I am dying. Nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, we, until we have visited a place called Calvary because it is only there at the foot of the cross that we are shrunk, that we shrink to our true size. That's what we deserve. That's who we are apart from Christ. Right? Too often we think more highly of ourselves than we should. But we never lose that place. We never, we never get out of the place that, that that's what we deserved. That that's the humiliation and the death and the suffering and the judgment that, that we deserve. Now, we don't get it because of Christ. He, died, he did it in our place. But th- those are who we are. We're sinners saved by grace. And we never get out of that place. And that's what he's saying in these verses. You never get out of this place. First of all, in terms of the cost to redeem us, but our Savior who models and who lays himself down for us, the mind that is ours in Christ Jesus is this humility and condescension to save and to serve and to bless others. But we see even as he does this, that death cannot hold him. Right From the humiliating depths to which he descends for us, it says that God raised him. That God raised him up. That the Father was was pleased with him, that he was pleased with his obedience, he was pleased with his sacrifice, in the sense that he was satisfied with the atonement that Christ has made, the spilling of his blood for us, and he was satisfied that the debt of our sin was paid, that the work of his son was done. And because he was satisfied, it says in verse 9, therefore has he raised him and exalted him to the highest place. He ascended into heaven and he sits at the right hand of God. Right? Jesus' prayer in John 17 is being answered. Right? He prayed that he would, that he would re- be restored to that glory that he had with the Father. And that's what happens. That is where this results. That therefore he is glorified with the glory that he had with the Father before the world was made. It's hard to describe. Ephesians 1 tries. Paul says there that he was raised that the Father raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. He is above all rule, authority, power, and dominion. And he has the name that is above every name that is named. Right? Not only in this age, but in the age to come now, forever and ever and ever. You know, in terms of from that point of his exaltation, there will never be a name higher than the name of Jesus. Forever, as long as the ages endure. The name that is above every name, at which every knee, he says, is going to bow, and every tongue is going to confess, right, verse 10, whether it's on the earth, under the earth, over the earth, if there's a knee anywhere in existence, it's going to bow, and they're going to confess, and this confession, this confession is to confess that Jesus is who he said he is. This confession, they're going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's who he is. And that he did for us what he said that he did, that is described throughout this text, that that he is who he said he is, that he's done what he has done. We will confess that he is Lord. And we confess this confession is worship and it's allegiance, it's reception, that he is my Lord, my Savior, my King. 
right? And he's not just a Lord, right? He is, when he says that you're going to confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. I mean, he, he means the Lord, right? Now, in the Old, the Old Testament, you remember, you see the Lord written capital L and then little O-R-D, and that just translates the word Lord in the Old Testament. But whenever you see the name of God, the name of Yahweh, right? The, the, the name that was so holy that they wouldn't pronounce, the Jews didn't like to, to speak it. Because it's the, name, it's the name that he gave them. It's the covenant name of God Almighty. And so in your Old Testament, you'll see wherever that name shows up, you'll see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Right? Whenever it's all caps, underneath it in the Hebrew is the name of God. The Lord. Yahweh. And so we know that when he says, you're going to confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, all caps. Isaiah 45, 23 says this, because what we're reading here is a quote. And if you look at the whole text in Isaiah 45, but I'm just going to pull it out because I think that it, it speaks for itself. But here it is where God says, by myself I have sworn. Right? Whenever God wants to say something that he wants you to not even think about doubting it, right? he says he swears by the highest thing, and he's the highest thing. He's like, there's nothing higher to swear by. I can't swear by, you know, we might swear by God, you know, but he can't swear by anything higher. So he just swears by himself. Right? And so he's, he's telling you, this is as true as it gets. And he says, from my mouth has gone out a righteous word. It means that it's true. It is, it is, it is absolutely inevitable and, and certain, and, 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 and it says and it, it won't return. And when he means it won't return, it means it doesn't return void. We've seen that elsewhere in the Old Testament. When it says your word doesn't return void, it means it does what he says. It happens just like he said it. It doesn't return. It goes out, and it let there be light, and there's light. Right, he says that by myself I'm swearing and by my mouth has gone out this righteous word that is going to happen. And it's what? That to me, Yahweh, every knee is going to bow. To me, not to anyone else. There's no one else on the planet that, that, that every knee should bow and confess their allegiance. Except to Yahweh, the God who made them and has the righteous claim on their obedience. And the scripture says... Jesus, the, the human name Jesus, the man who was born, Jesus the Christ, that's his title, the Messiah, that Jesus Christ is the Lord. The Lord. The Lord is the one who humbled himself. Right? He's explaining why we should have this mind described in verses 1 to 4. Right? It's the application of all that we've been talking about. The application is it's where he starts. Right? And, he, and he recounts some of the realities and the blessings that flow from the resurrection. And then he, and he gives the application of it. And then he says, in case you're wondering why I'm telling you to have this mind among yourself, the same mind. It's the mind of Jesus. You know, what is that mind? Well, it's the mind of the one who was equal to God in form and power and glory who humbled himself to serve. Who came not to be served but to serve and to give himself. And so he recounts these realities. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, let me just ask you, is there? Right? And so the, actually these statements where he says, if actually carry the, the strength of since, because they're true statements. But he asks them in this rhetorical way, if there's any encouragement in Christ. And there is. Of course there is. He, he, the whole New Testament is about it. Is there any encouragement in Christ? Is there any comfort in his love? Of course there is. Is there, is there any power in the spirit that is poured out and been given to us? In verse 
Still in verse 1, yes, there is. Is there any affection and sympathy that comes to us from Christ? Can you imagine the one who did for us what he did? The sympathy and the affection. Of course there is. And he says, if these things are all true, then make my joy complete. Complete my joy as an apostle of Christ, not just as any old guy like, hey, you guys make me happy. You know, and this is what you can do for me. No, no, as an apostle of Christ, as a spokesman, the one who, is, who gives the word of Christ, you know, make my joy as an apostle complete, that the power of the resurrection is manifest in your lives as his church and as his people. My joy will be overflowing when I see the mind of Christ, of the risen Christ who has loved us and done for us all that he has done, manifest in the way that the church loves and serves and is humble and gentle with each other. The same mind, right? And that's what he says in, as he goes on in verse 2, we're to have complete my joy, have the same mind. Right now, and that's two things. It's like the same mind, meaning you should have that mind, and you should have that mind, and you should have, like we all should have the same mind. We should have one, you know, we have, be of one mind. But that mind that, that we should each have, we're told in verse 5, oh, by the way, that's the mind of Christ. And each one of us should have it. So we should have the same mind, and then he says, and the same love. The love of Christ, right? We should share the heart and the mind of Christ, should be manifest and joyed in the life of his people, right? Being in full accord, being in harmony, in unity, in one mind, right? The same mind, one mind. Verse 5, the mind of Christ. And he goes on to say, what does that look like? What is the same mind and the same love that we're to have? What does it look like? It means, verse 3, doing nothing out of selfish ambition or do nothing out of conceit. Selfish ambition, self-promotion, self-serving, getting our own way. Do, do nothing in the life of the church that is you putting you forward. Right? Because that's not the mind of Christ. That's not how he did it. He could have put himself forward, but he, but he didn't. He humbled himself. Right? And so we see the power of the resurrection, and that's why I say one of the most powerful miracles. We say there are those who want to see the power of the resurrection, you know, in health, wealth, and, and um, prosperity, and there are others who want to see the power of the resurrection in, in phenomenal things, that I did this, and I can do that. You know, it's the power in me, and But it is interesting to see that in the scripture, and I'm not saying that God can't do marvelous things like that in his people, but I can tell you this, that the number one thing that the scripture thinks is a miracle is when proud, arrogant, rebellious, self-centered people become like Jesus in gentleness and humility and service. So topsy-turvy to the world. It really is, right? To count others, verse 3, to count others more significant than yourselves. To think of others first. You know, you can think of them as more significant. Is it to say they're, they're better? But it's to say in the scheme of things, it's God, others, me, right? And that we should, we should love others and we should do for others. And we should, as he says, to put the needs of others before our own. That's what Jesus did. He didn't need Anything that he did, he didn't need anything out of there. He didn't need anything from us. He doesn't need you. We should banish that thought. God doesn't need us. 
He chose us. Right? And he, and he says that he, he was willing to do all these things and lay aside, not because he gained something, but because you gained something. He did it for us. He humbled himself to serve us. Right? And this is what he says. Remember Matthew 20. See, we, we live in a world that is just the idolatries of power, of money, of fame, of acclaim, of success, and all the things that we want, numbers and bigness. I've been listening to a podcast about a megachurch that, that rose and then, and then collapsed in a burning ball. And what, part of what it just reminds me is the things that we get infatuated with, you know, all of these kind of things in terms of we want to, you know, be successful and have people, you know, and even as a church, you know, the more numbers and the glitz and what's happening. And so we get down the wrong road on these things. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 20. Do you remember when his disciples, they were kind of eating it up. Jesus was popular, right? It says that the crowds gathered the whole, he'd come somewhere and it said the whole town came out to listen, right? Whole towns. And he would go somewhere and the crowds would follow him. They would try to beat him there. He'd cross the lake and he'd get there and there are the crowds. And, you know, Jesus is performing miracles and, and doing, you know, doing all these things. And the apostles are like, we're with him. You know, like, this is good. Like, this is good. It's good to be with Jesus, right? It's good to be one of his, right? There's power. There's glory. Everybody's here. They're literally eating out of our hands. And, you know, so they're getting all full of it. And they're looking ahead thinking, where is this going? And they're like, Jesus, can I sit at your right hand? You know, let my brother sit at your left hand? Like, here's where, where, where we go. Like, I want the seat of honor. I want the seat of power. I want the seat of authority. I want, you know, where, where is this going? And Jesus looks at him, and I can't even imagine, again, you have to hear in this where, where the apostles are and they're asking. Just think if you asked it and, you know, and then your pastor or somebody answers you and says, you know, the rulers of the Gentiles, right, the, the pagans, right, the ones who don't know God at all, they don't have his word, they don't have his stuff, they don't have his spirit, they're out there, you know, and, you know, and they don't know me and they don't know, like these, the pagans, they're like that, right? They lord it over them, right? They love power. And they love popularity, and they love all these things. Jesus is always going, like, go in your closet. Stop being showy. Stop being full of yourself. All right? And he says, you know, this is, they're great ones. They love to exercise authority. But then he says, not you. Not you. Not my people. <laughs> not my disciples, my followers, my loved ones, my children, my brothers, my body. Don't be like that. That's the world. The topsy-turvy kingdom of Jesus is what? Whoever would be great among you, the greatest Christian, is the one who is a servant, the one who serves. Where, you know, where is, you know, then, you know, this is what Jesus did. He he's puts his money where his mouth is. And though he was in equality with God, he humbled himself. And he came not to be served, but to serve and to, and to give himself. Right? This is the mind of Jesus. And so as we think even about the church and the things that need to happen in the church and needs that need to be met and all the kind of stuff that goes on that is in a community, in a body, there's work to be done and needs to be met and stuff to go on. And too often we hold ourselves aloof. We hold ourselves back. You know, we'll give a scrap here and there as it suits me. You know, we sort of, you know, sort of hold ourselves aloof to, you know, wherever and maybe here, maybe there and I would suggest to us that, that, that the mind of Jesus is 
to come not to be served, not to receive, but to give. Where can I give? Where can I pour in? Where can I lay myself down? Where can I meet your needs? Where can I do what needs to be done? To not grasp and demand our rights. There's so much talk these days about our rights and our privileges and the, all the stuff that we deserve. How many commercials say da, 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 that you deserve? Right? I, I can't tell you. There's probably, I could, if I started making a list, um, there are just tons of them of what you deserve. And we start to absorb some of this. But not to demand our rights. Jesus says he had all the rights and all the privileges, all the power, all the glory. And it says that he didn't consider it something to be grasped, but he laid it all aside. He put it aside so that he could serve others, that he could put others first. You know, we've been talking about, if you remember, some of you were here, if you haven't seen it, I did a sermon where we talked about Romans, we've been doing Romans, and you do Romans 1 to 11, and it's all, Romans 1 to 11 are all indicatives, which means it's just telling you the truth. What God did, who God is, what Christ did, tells you from 1 to 11 the grand scope of God's redemptive work. And then it's not till chapter 12 that you get a command. You don't get any commands until chapter 12. In other words, you've got to know what God has done. You've got to know that he's already paid it all. He's already done all this. He loved you before the foundations of the world. You've got to know that you're in Christ, that your sins are forgiven, that you are accepted and beloved. And you've got to know all these things before he tells you to do one thing. Right? He tells you to understand who you are in Christ. And Ephesians is the same way. One to three in Ephesians, there's not one command. Ephesians one to three says he chose you in Christ before the foundations of the world, and he has loved you and adopted you, and, and he's going to make you holy, you know, that he has, that is by grace you have been saved through faith in this, not of yourselves. And, and he does all of these indicatives about who you are, and you get to chapter four, and you get the first command. So when you think of the grand scope of all that God has done, you might think coming out of that is he did all this for us and he's raised and he's seated there. I get the best parking spots, right? I get, you know, people should, you know, respect me and, you know, we might want to stride through the world with some kind of power, you know, performing things that people can admire and, you know, we want, at least that's the way I see some Christians think it's supposed to go. But if you were to guess, if you haven't looked and the quote didn't come up yet, what is the first thing when Paul says, given all of this that God has done, he prays this, walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling. Trail like people like that. Walk worthy. Right? Walk worthy of the calling that you've received. Okay, what is this? How do I do? What, is, what does it look like to walk worthy? Number one. Number one fruit of the resurrection and all that Jesus has done, all that Jesus has accomplished and won for us, all that Jesus wants to do in our lives. And number one thing when he said, okay, now, now, walk worthy. And then he says, in all humility and with all gentleness. The first thing out of his mouth, humble and gentle, with patience, he said, bearing with one another in love, right? Have the same mind and the same love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, as he says, in in unity and in harmony, right? In the bonds of peace, the same mind, the same love, that same unity and harmony in in the bonds of the Spirit, the mind of Christ, the risen Christ. He empowers a new worthy walk for his people. And it's humble. And it's gentle, not loving our own comfort, not loving our own ideas, not loving our own agenda, not having to have our own way, right? These are all opposite to the mind that is being revealed to us. John Newton says, humility and love 
are the highest attainments in the school of Christ, right? He gets it. It's the highest attainment in the school of Christ. It's the brightest evidence that he is indeed your master. Is it you're like him? He said, come to me and learn of me. And what are you going to learn there? He says, for I'm gentle and I'm humble. That's what you're going to learn in the school of Christ, right? And he says, the highest attainment, that which we should be praying for and seeking and asking and repenting of, you know, in the life of the church and elsewhere is when we get full of ourselves, And seeking that humility and that gentleness and that graciousness that bears with one another. And loves unity in the mind of Christ above myself. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it this way. He says the same thing. The Holy Spirit always leads to humility and meekness. If he goes anywhere, he goes there. Because that's what he's like. He goes to holiness and meekness. I've known people who have claimed to be led by the Spirit in unusual degree. You see that, you know, people who claim to be spiritual and run in things in the world as God's, you know, kings. But there is an absence of meekness and humility in them. Indeed, at times there was spiritual pride and self-satisfaction. He says that's not the Spirit of Christ. The Holy Spirit always leads to humility. So as we face the world, and, I, and so now it's, and that, that's among ourselves, and I guess it, it's just as we think about the resurrection, I see time and again that, that, that the character of Christ, when he pours out his spirit, he says he was raised, and the Father gave him the spirit to pour out on his people, and, and to, you know, for us to be then spirit-filled, and then the goal there is for us to be like Jesus. And so when the fruit of that spirit that was poured out is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness, humility, faithfulness, self-control, right? That is the power of the Holy Spirit, humbling, rebellious, proud people. But just imagine what that does for the church. I just read so much of churches falling apart and pastors and people at war and things going on and You think of the power of the resurrection and God's purposes in his church. And here's the picture that he has for us. And even as we put our face and our posture to the world, you know, we've been talking about not conforming to the world, but to be transformed by by the renewing of our minds. And what is that mind? You know, and I said in being transformed from the world, you know, not being conformed to the world means we've got to tear down strongholds, right? Those opinions and arguments that hold themselves up against God. And one of the applications is that while we tear down strongholds, and what he means here is opinions and arguments, like we engage bad thinking with biblical thinking, we do tear down opinions and arguments, but we never tear down people. We never tear down people. Right? There are real people who are struggling and hurting who are lost and who need Jesus. Right? Our desire is that they come to know Christ. And as we face the world, the spirit that will entice them will not be that spirit of of arrogant, self-cocksure attack. It's going to be humility and kindness and patience as we share Christ with them with the desire that they know him. It's to love people. The posture toward the world is the same. John Stott says a supreme quality, again, the supreme quality which the evangelical faith engenders or should engender is humility. And the problem is this, that evangelical people are often regarded as proud and vain and arrogant and cocksure. Jesus was hardest on self-righteous people, religious people. Remember, we had that sermon where he was hard on church people, but 
sinners. Like he met a woman at the well and he had this gentle conversation with her over a couple of hours or days and, you know, saw her come to faith in Christ and so it is part of the town because he didn't tear her down. He engaged her, but he did, he spoke the truth in love as we think about our Facebook pages and how we talk to people and our posture. Let me leave you with this picture. In John 13 to 17, we said Jesus is spending his last night in the upper room with his disciples. And it begins, you remember how it begins, is with the washing of the feet, where Jesus comes in and he strips himself down to a loincloth and he gets a bowl of water and a cloth and he gets down on his knees and he washes his disciples' feet. Now, I hope that you see in this, when you, when you hear this story, that you're thinking he is giving a picture, an illustration of what he's about to do on the cross, where they're going to strip him down and he's going to wash us. Right? It's a picture of, it's also a picture of the incarnation where he stripped down, laid aside all of his glory, and took the form of a servant, got the basin and the towel to, to wash us. Right? And so here's this picture, and it's a powerful picture that as we get this picture, but you should go and read it, maybe it's your homework, right? that when he finishes washing his disciples' feet, what he says to them. Part of what he says is this. I have given you an example that you should also do as I have done for you. I went to the lowliest, the lowest and dirtiest place, to the depths of your humiliation, to your depths of your dirty feet and the depths of your humiliation and sin and guilt. I went to the depths and I, and I stripped it off and I humbled myself and I took the form of a servant and I loved you and I served you and I saved you. And I'm still gentle with you, even though you're still a sinner. And you need his grace every day. And every day when you go, his mercies are new every morning. Because he is gentle. And he's humble and he's kind to us in our sin and in our misery. He's gracious. And so when we survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and I pour contempt in all of my pride. I plead that God will forgive me for my pride as it comes out every day in so many ways. And as we seek the power of the resurrection, and we seek the spirit of Christ, and that is the character of Christ, the very mind of Christ, which is to consider other people's more significant than ourselves and to serve them and to love them even as we have been served and loved. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for sending your own son Jesus, we thank you for coming, for laying aside your glory, for humbling yourself and doing for us what we could not do for ourselves, paying our debt, drinking the dregs of the cup of wrath on our behalf. May we know your mind. No, Father, more than that, may you come in the power of your spirit Set us free from our pride and our self-centeredness and our selfishness and help us to love others and serve others, to be selfless to the glory of our Savior and our Father. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.